Coming up on this week's show, has Atari got a new owner? One of the best FPS games of all time gets a remaster. And we explore the early days of interactive games with Tracy Fullerton. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now you need to check out their biggest, most ambitious book to date, The Games That Weren't, providing illustrated snapshots of unreleased games from 1975 to 2015. You can check out that and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 290, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, where, of course, each week we reminisce about classic video games. We bring you an industry veteran to come on and tell their story and explore the early days of their career. And, of course, we keep you up to date with all the latest in the world of retro gaming and technology news with our boisterous bunch of button bashers, the Retro Hour crew. I got one more in for you, Joe. I know you like him. <laughs> I do. I love him. I love him. You got to keep it going. You got to keep it going, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting harder each week. I must admit. Um, but yeah, here we are. This is our last show of August this year. It's flying by. I just realised episode number two ninety as well. Don't want to panic anyone, but that means now we've only got um, nine up, episodes until the, uh, the big three hundred. I, I don't know what you're on about panic, anybody. It's Ravi's job, isn't it? <laughs> I'm just ignoring it. Sweep everything under the carpet, and hopefully yeah. <laughs> a, a good guest will pop up for episode three hundred. You know what? We we could have just not hyped it, and nobody would have noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's your fault, Dan. <laughs> because on episode one hundred we had Nolan Bushnell, on uh, two hundred we had Charlie Brooker. We've kind of set ourselves up for doing something, you know, a bit of a land thing for our 100 episodes we will do something to mark 300 whether or not we get someone infamous on the show to talk we're going to do something special for 300 anyway oh, for sure for away. sure we'll yeah. get someone yeah even if it's the developer of cheetah man we'll still get someone <laughs> i'd be pretty pleased with that yeah <laughs> but of course i mean the problem is that we bring amazing guests to you each week i mean we haven't we've done like nearly 300 guests now on this podcast and they're all absolutely amazing. That is kind of the aim of this show. I mean, when we started doing it, obviously we love bringing you the news as well, and that's kind of where we have our fun at the start of the show. But really the idea was we wanted this to be a collection of stories that capture such a unique time in what became and what is now the biggest form of entertainment in the world. And it's amazing that we're capturing these people's stories that will live on for eternity long after all of us are here. Yeah, and we've always wanted guests that we find interesting and this week's guest is no different. It's Tracy Fullerton. And uh, Tracy actually worked on um, interactive television in the in the kind of early days, interactive TV gaming. So mm. she worked with companies like MTV, and they had a million people participating in one game at the same time. Um, can you imagine trying to handle that on a, a old kind of system? So what it was, it was like you'd play along on your computer on 56K, and uh, you'd play along at the same time as your television set was telling you to. So they'd be like gaming on set times. And uh, it was mass participation. And uh, Tracy is an experimental games designer. She's a professor at USC. She's also Electronic Arts Endowed Chair. And she's a winner of the Times Best of the Web, which was the old school kind of like best of the web competitions. And, uh, you know, she had her roots in internet gaming doing one of the first sponsored games and uh 
this was all before even Flash existed. Can you believe it? Well, that one you mentioned then with MTV, um, and I'm not sure if it ever aired over here. Our American audience may know that a bit more. It was a show called Web Riot that was on in, uh, from 1999 it started. And you're right, you think 99, that was um, you know obviously pre-broadband for a lot of people. So trying to have, you know, a, kind of a twinning of broadcast television and um, a game that people are playing online at the time was very innovative. But even before that, she was doing stuff with the MSN network. And if you remember, that was kind of Microsoft's attempt to do their own walled garden version of the internet, wasn't it? It was like AOL did, you know, their portal. And she was doing interactive games on there. And like you said, that was even before Flash. So we're yeah, talking like mid-90s. Like, they had like presenters on this, so, you know, full animations, speech. It was like a huge quiz and you could actually win a holiday as well. So it's like, you know, you could... You could win a plane trip and uh, it was sponsored by Expedia. But also, even before that, she was doing interactivity in the cinema. So, like, you know, they had a, a film with Adam West starring in it and you actually went into the cinema and selected different buttons on your seat. And, the, and I love this idea of, you know, everybody in the same room all playing together and all kind of, you know, playing in a, in a, in a different way. And uh, even though we've got servers with, like, a few people on them nowadays, you know, maybe 200 or something. You get, you get like thousands or millions on these kind of um, mass participation games. I, mean, I find this whole thing really interesting. And this interview is just absolutely amazing. And it's a different aspect of gaming that we've not really covered before. Well, most people say Adam West, obviously, you know, Batman, first thing that comes to mind. For me, it's always Family Guy. As soon as you said Adam West, I was like, Adam Wee, because <laughs> of that episode of Family Guy. But yeah, Batman came to mind as well. But it also reminded me of that episode of Futurama when they go to the cinema and they have to all vote and they have to pick, like to choose your own, own adventure when they watch the Calcalon film. Mm. Um, so it, it's good to see that they ripped that idea off of Futurama. <laughs> no, it was and also already around. Bandersnatch, of, of course. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. the kind of new version of interactive what that television. Was. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, it seemed in America they were doing much more innovative stuff than we were over here. Because I remember my earliest experience of uh, interactive TV or you know gaming on TV was um, shows like Motormouth when they had um, they played Magic Pockets and a kid would ring up on the phone and literally you just give instructions. with a joystick. Yeah, that's back. all it was. Yeah. You'd be like, move left, and then someone would move left with a joystick. What's the Hugo remember, games? Yeah, Hugo came, yeah, I think yeah. that was shortly after, yeah. yeah, that yeah. Was, um, it was on in a few different countries that as well, wasn't it? Hmm. We had the red button as well, which was yeah. um, like, I remember a thing called two-way TV, which was early on, and it was like Sky and uh, Channel 4, I think, and, and you, you could play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and you could kind of, like, you know, phone a friend or choose the different options on there. And, and that was all using the red button. But uh, that that's not being used anymore, is it? No, I think they got rid of that last year, which to me, the red button still feels like a new innovation. <laughs> so, I thought that still feels quite cutting edge, but apparently they got rid of it last year. Uh, but Tracy also worked on, you know, um, he wants to be a millionaire and the weakest link games as well, you know, in the early 2000s. So a really interesting chat. Tracy Fullerton is our special guest and she'll be coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, before we get into the news this week, how's about this? We want to give you a free retro gaming magazine. You heard that right. Free. That sounds absolutely amazing. How can we do this, Dan? <laughs> well, this is our friends at Old School Gamer Magazine, who've been kind enough to support the Retro Out podcast. So we ask you, support them. And 
Honestly, there's no reason not to. This is a free digital magazine. They do paid versions as well, but this is for their free edition. Now, this comes into your inbox every other month, around 30 pages, and these guys are the most dedicated team of gamers you will ever meet. And they cover so much in here as well. And these articles go really in-depth. They're really well-written. And if you enjoy our podcast, you're going to really enjoy the content in this mag. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. I'm I'm not a big reader, but I have caught myself reading this quite a few times since I signed up. I really like their um, arcade reviews where they go into, like Dan says, really great detail about arcade machines. And I've been reading about Dragon Master, um, Witch Loves Bullets, which are games that just like people never really talk about because I love mm. arcade games. And then also they don't just, you know, they do like Resident Evil and stuff like that and touch on a few of the modern bits in there and stuff. But they've got an awesome article about the original trilogy, which is really cool. And it's kind of like a PDF as well, isn't it? So you just yeah. like sign up and you can read it in your browser and it's a free magazine and like they've themed them as well. So they've had a previously adventure game issues, the racing mm. issue, you know, first person shooters, and they've got interviews with developers, um, reviews of games, new stuff coming out, like the new news. And uh, it, it just looks absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it's, it's a nice little thing. It, I can imagine if you've got an iPad, or something mm. this would just like absolutely beautiful and you can just sit there and scroll through it. And they do specials on, you know, specific games, like there's a Dragon's Lair special, Wolfenstein 3D, Resident Evil trilogy. They also did a really good multi-page look at light gun games as well. So there's no reason at all for you not to check this out. And it is thanks to our friends at Old School Gamer Magazine. Like I said, they've supported our podcast, so please do this right now. Visit this link, oldschoolgamer.com slash retro. Pop your details on there, I'll take you five seconds, and then you're going to get this incredible free magazine, their free digital edition, delivered into your inbox. Oldschoolgamer.com slash retro, and I'll put that link in our show notes. And a massive thank you to our friends at Old School Gamer Magazine for their support of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, of course, it's been another busy week in the world of retro gaming news, and uh, an old, <laughs> I didn't say friend of the show, someone who's provided... <laughs> Hours of entertainment for us on um, previous episodes of this podcast is back to uh, make us giggle a bit more. This is Soldier Boy. Now, who is Soldier Boy for people that might not know? He's not a serious rapper, is he? He came. He's, <laughs> he, he was kind of all I know him. I'm I, I'm not big on the modern rap game, but um, it was twenty well, years ago, wasn't he? Yeah, that's, that's modern for me. Anything past the Beastie Boys? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he came out with like one hit, which was uh, the Soldier Boy. So, crank that yeah crank that, that yeah, was yeah, yeah. which was like what like 15 14 years ago now something he like did that. this kind of dance five, yeah. to the left yeah. and right that's all i know about him but since then he's been releasing all these kind of crazy consoles soldier consoles and soldier pads and soldier phones and, and they all seem to be like little android consoles as well um you know just with a few roms chucked on them and the the reviews of it's a bit of a joke, really. Uh, some of these kind of soldier games and little <laughs> systems that have come out. Pretty much that's the nail on the head there. Yeah, he was a, a rapper who had a really big hit in the mid-2000s. And then he turned his hand at gaming. And apparently he owns multiple gaming companies, which are essentially Chinese knockoff consoles. And he's been sued a couple of times by Nintendo over the years for the emulation. But yeah, his his most recent biggest claim is that he's now the official owner of Atari, which Atari don't seem to agree with. <laughs> so do you, want, do you want to hear, this is a little video that he posted on, um, I think this was his um, Instagram Live, 
Um, this is Soldier Boy breaking the news to his followers that he now owns one of the most famous video games companies. They signed me to a deal to Atari. Big shout out to Atari, the whole staff. I'm about to revamp the company. We're going to take Atari to the next level. Everybody go follow at Atari. I am now the owner of Atari. I own the video game company Atari. They was real They was real proud of me and what I did with the Soldier Boy game console. You know what I'm saying? I blew Soldier Boy game up. Um, we about to sell the company for like, was it 100? I think I'm going to get 140 million. I'm going to get like 100, I'm going to get 140 million dollars from Soldier Boy game. So Atari reached out and I just signed a deal with Atari. I signed two deals with Atari. I'm the owner. I'm not sure what that rattling noise is. It kind it's of sounds like chain. Word for it. it's, his, yeah. it's his chain rattling. I watched the video and it's like his, his as I say, his neckerchief, but his like necklace is uh, is rattling and it like bashing on his rings and stuff. But I just, you know, another yeah. thing he's talking about how successful the kind of soldier co- console was and stuff. I don't think you could actually buy it off his website. I don't think you can buy it anymore. Didn't they, yeah, like like you I said, didn't they get taken down? Yeah, he got, yeah, yeah, he got he got sued in 2018 by Nintendo. And then he re-released some some more ones like last year, I think, or something like that. Uh, yeah, there's a new one, TRTD, which is just a kind of Android. Yeah, um, but I don't, I can't imagine he's making that kind of money, 140 million from selling the knockoff consoles that he imports from China. And I don't think he even imports them. Like it's just his names on the. They're way like on. they're like Amazon consoles, aren't they? You yeah, know, that's ones that you just get packed full of ROMs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the, the most important thing is, you know, our new owner of Atari. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Atari. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, if you look at this Instagram live video, he's wearing an Atari cap. Then he stands up and he's got an Atari T-shirt on. You know, it's kind of to prove the point, I guess. But then Atari actually debunked that pretty much straight away in a tweet um, which read, we know that the CEO of Atari is a dream job, but that honour belongs to Wade Rosen. And then Soldier Boy went absolutely postal on them. Did you guys see the follow-up video? I've not seen the follow-up video. I've tried to find it and I couldn't find it. I, I, I linked it up in our uh, Facebook group too, just saying. Oh, okay. Let me have a quick look. <laughs> <laughs> no, but literally I can't play it because he goes, every other this word is, is an FLC word. F and yeah. Jeff and like, yeah. oh man, uh, it's it's mad because Atari have been doing a lot of things recently. And to be honest, I think they've probably got a better rep in the games world at the moment. Like the, the VCS has come out, but they're also doing the hotel and they're doing the Atari coin as well, aren't they? And they've, they've got like their fingers in loads of different pies and there's the um, different collections that they've been releasing on consoles as well. Which is why when I first saw this... <laughs> Because Atari have been like so off the wall recently, I actually thought, well, maybe yes. You know, I, I didn't actually <laughs> doubt it at first. Um, but it turns out, I mean, why do you guys think this is then? Because obviously they've debunked it. So what is Soldier Boy playing at? I, part of me wants to say he's just like, he's an idiot and he's just pickled his brain. And he thought, oh yeah, I own Atari now for some reason. And he's literally just made a video that he's just fabricated out of nowhere. But apparently from what I've read and what I've heard in the rant video, he's like, got the contract and he's like swinging it around on camera mm. and apparently some people have like you know took some stills and watched it and apparently he has signed some sort of deal with atari according to his contract but they've paid him in cryptocurrency their own cryptocurrency and yeah. they think and what people think is what he thinks he's been given shares in the company which makes him the owner of it 
Well, I mean, I'm, I've been looking into a few videos on this, and um, Richard Review Tech USA did a really good video. He did about three this week. Yeah. And his latest one actually gives his theories, and a few other people have had this theory as well. Because it turns out Soldier Boy, even though he's like a bit of a one-hit wonder, he's still worth $30 million 30, in 2021. 30 million? Yeah, 30 yeah. million he's worth. Okay. So he's obviously got some business savvy, you know. And yeah. if you look at his um, Twitter, he says he's a cryptocurrency king, he, he right. refers to himself. So some people are speculating that what he actually did is he kind of did a bit of an Elon Musk, you know, trying to play the um, Atari coins. Pump it up. Right. Yeah. So he's bought, I mean, by the looks of that, yeah, people have done stills of this, and it turns out I think it's like a million a million dollars worth maybe they've given him of a Atari crypto. Right. So what some people are saying is what he might be trying to do is, yeah, kind of pump that up. People get interested in the company, they go out and buy it, it makes a profit, sells it on. Because mm. obviously I, he's getting a lot of publicity. I just think it could have been a kid ringing him up going like, I'm Atari. And he's like, I've done a deal with Atari. I'm the CEO. <laughs> just faked all the contracts. You know what? The, the contract actually does look like it could just be a template that was printed out off the internet. So that could be a possibility. Some other people think maybe Atari, you know, because have been kind of a bit out there recently. Maybe they're like trolling him, you know, for publicity. Yeah, maybe. I think yeah, what you yeah. said about the whole kind of Elon Musk thing, though, I think that's mm. maybe more likely, and he has done this just to kind of try and make some money out of it. So. Things are always mad when crypto surrounds them, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know Ravi's often got his eyes over the crypto markets as well, so um, yeah, keep an eye on the Atari coins this week, Ravi. See, see how well they look over the weekend, I oh, think. Commodore coin. <laughs> that's all I look at. Now, I'm hoping that... Um, my little connection to you guys over our Zencaster program that we use is a holding up because in the background I've actually got my Xbox One downloading the new version of Quake that um, landed on Game Pass Ooh. this week. Um, it's only a gigabyte, so it's probably done by now. <laughs> yeah. But of course, this is to celebrate Quake's 25th anniversary, which is insane. That makes me feel old. I remember playing Quake at my cousin's house on his computer and being blown away by the graphics. But yeah, this is the new enhanced version of Quake, isn't it? It's not a remaster, it's an enhanced, is it a 4K widescreen version pretty much of the game, isn't it? Well, Quake I remember originally when that came out, because it was kind of around the era when, you know, id Software, obviously the kings of Mm. first-person shooters in the 90s. And it just felt like there was such a generational leap every couple of years. You went from Wolfenstein 3D, which, you know, I remember first seeing that, told the story before in Rhyme and the Stationers. Um, my jaw dropped when I saw that, just, you know, a 3D game where you could wander around. Doom came along and you had, you know, texture mapping and stuff on there. That looked amazing again. Then a couple of years later, you know, we got Quake and it just felt like there was something new from id that was just going to blow your mind mm. every time they came out with a new I, game. And, and then we had Daikatana after that and that just changed yeah, the yeah. world. I think the launch of <laughs> launch of Quake kind of, um, it was it was a bit like overshadowed by Doom still. Because it had the similar kind of like hell style and kind of graphics. People were just like, oh, this is just Doom, but it's a bit more like 3D and, uh, you know, it supports more graphics cards. And actually Quake was an amazing game in its own right. And like, you know, the series continued as well when like Quake 2 and Quake 3 as well. Just absolutely fantastic games. And like the modding community also came on like they did with... um, Doom, you know, that was amazing. I even remember playing Quake Rally and like Quake Chess. And, you know, they're they made using the Quake engine, like racing games and stuff. And, I thought uh, they were like official releases then. I was like, what's Quake Rally? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a racing game but in the Quake engine. And um, yeah. 
Also, there was there was other games like Kim Kingpin was kind of looked very quakey if you remember that one with the uh, big chunky guys in that and uh, uh, QuakeCon's actually happening at the moment and they're they're doing it uh, online and that's been running um, since basically 1996 so 25 years they've been running QuakeCon and Mm. that's a a kind of huge convention in Dallas Texas and uh, the competitive Quake is still a massive thing but um, this new version looks really really good and one of the amazing things that uh looking at it i actually saw a um, friend of the show modern vintage gamer was actually on the development team for this and um he'd done previous quake ports for the xbox and uh you know back in the day was when people were kind of modding it and, and chucking it on different systems and uh one of the great things about this is i was looking at is the multiplayer component and um it's actually a cross play so you know, if you're on the PC, you can you can play with people on the consoles as well. Oh, yeah. nice! Yeah, which uh, is awesome. And you've got like online matchmaking, and mm-hmm. uh, you could do four player co op as well. Yeah, it's got local cool. multiplayer on it as well, which is awesome because obviously so many games even don't have that anymore. And even when they're re released, they seem to take out the local co op. But apparently, the local co op is still on there as well, which is awesome. But What's cool is, like you say, it's got the cross-platform. It's coming out on PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, PC, and I believe it's coming out on the Switch as well. Yeah, uh, it, is, yeah, it has, which is really, really awesome. And also, if you already own Quake for Steam, you'll automatically get the enhanced version for free, apparently. Oh, wow. So, Joe, you could play on your Switch, Dan yep. on his new PS5, and me on the PC, and we could all play co-op. That's there you pretty go. amazing. <laughs> there you go. Sounds good. And it's on Game Pass as well on Xbox, uh, which is pretty awesome. So, And also Quake, you know, they have a really big part in uh, the speedrunning community. In the, uh, I don't know if you guys know, but in the kind of like starting of speedrunning and stuff like that, Quake was one of the first ever games that became famous for it, which is really cool. So, yeah, it's good to see it's getting the love still. I'm loving the fact they're bringing out their 4K 120Hz version for the PS5 as well. The two games I'm most hyped for on my PS5 are now Grand Theft Auto Vice City and Quake. <laughs> well, well, also this this version has um, uh, like both the game's original expansions, so the Scourge of the Armageddon, uh, oh, Disillusion of Eternity, but then it also has a new, a brand new expansion as well, which is uh, Dimension of the Machine. Um, so. You've got quite a lot of uh, stuff going on there. And, uh, of course, you'll be able to uh, play with official mods as well and stuff. And I can imagine this is just going to get madder and madder. And hopefully uh, we could have a go on Quake Rally at one point, (laughs) if it's still in development. (laughs) I do think it's awesome that they've really shown it some love. And, you know, the fact that it's obviously the 25th anniversary and they've done something that really, you know, preserves the game. And for a new generation as well, I mean, it's a 25-year-old game now, so there's going to be a lot of people that are playing it for the first time on the console. So, um, yeah, very good to see it getting the, uh, the love and respect that it deserves. So that is available now. Now, something that unfortunately isn't available now, because um, at the time we're recording this, it's literally just been taken down this morning. This is an extremely impressive fan-made version of The Simpsons Hit and Run that kind of gives us a bit of a teaser as to what a full remaster of the game could be. Yeah, this is mental. So um, I think the main impressive thing about this is the actual speed that he's done it in. Like, yeah. uh, I, I knew it got it got taken down and, uh, of course, it'd get removed because it was basically all of the uh, assets that he just, mm. like, imported. 
straight away. Yeah. Um, it's a guy called uh, Ruben Rubes Ward, and um, he decided to get the first mission done in a week. And the oh, way wow. that he's done it is he basically ripped the assets out of the uh, out of the original game. So he got the whole original map. Then he remastered the map. He put it into um, Unreal Engine, started tinkering about with it. He's known yeah. as kind of an Unreal tinkerer. And um, he got the whole map working, yeah. but then he had like certain things wouldn't work in one version of Unreal. So then he'd create them in another earlier version of it and then import them. So he knew about all these like quick tricks on how to get stuff actually mm. working. And uh, the main problem that he had was um, the textures, actually. So the textures, um, you know, they, 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 they were quite old and they didn't look yeah, low res, yeah. yeah, low res and stuff. But um, I don't know if you've ever used this program. It's called Gigapixel AI. It's pretty amazing. Um, you right. any... Yeah, is that like an artificial intelligence upscaler? Yeah, yeah. So it's just an AI upscaler and uh, you sign up to okay. that. It's pro- probably one of the best in the world and you, you just put stuff in there and it cleans up the images, upscales it and stuff. And, you know, before someone would be individually sitting there and kind of cleaning up every image and redoing them all. Mm. But he just did it with AI and that meant oh, wow. that, like, you know, a lot of these were, were, were really well done and really done quickly. He had to do a few himself, but then he also yeah. redid the models, the animation of the models. Um, he, he added in the user interface, the, the, the areas with the camera and like all the tools around it, like the Unreal Engine, just make this so easy. And it just shows if one person can do like the first mission in a week, mm. like imagine what a team of people could do. With, well, in an afternoon, yeah. Do, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How polished it could get, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that you say that because it's like, like you say, it, like Dan said, it, it kind of got announced, not announced, but you know, he kind of put it out there this morning and by the afternoon it's already been removed and taken down. Now they're saying it's for copyright reasons because as Ravi said, he has just, he's just ripped the assets straight out of the original game and obviously it's 20th Century Fox who own the Simpsons or Disney now and everything. So it's been taken down straight away. But I'm praying to the Simpsons gods it's been taken down because they are doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, they're probably not because of, like we say, we've spoke about this game about three or four times now on the show. But like you say, just do it. Like he did it in a week on his own, you know, the first level. I'm sure it wouldn't be that much of a mammoth task for them to redo it themselves and put the game out again. And there must be loads of games out there that are open source. Like I was looking mm. at this immediately and I was thinking, right, I saw they did GTA 1, like the original, in the Duke Nukem engine mm-hmm. in a 3D kind of way. Imagine doing a, a GTA 1 in like GTA 5 style on the Unreal Engine. Oh, if, if, I, if I got this fast and stuff, maybe, maybe I could do that one day. You know what, though? It is, you are right there. And I think the reason this got taken down is, you know, the IP is owned by Disney who, you know, something as big as The Simpsons, they're not going to let that fly under the radar, I guess. But all the reaction I've seen of this is people going, oh my God, that game's amazing. You know, wouldn't it be so good if we had a full new version of Hit and Run? So the fact that it is so loved, maybe that will inspire some of the, you know, maybe medium to big game studios who can afford to, you know, license the Simpsons IP to actually do this, because, I mean, it kind of proves, you know, whatever you think of fan-made games, it proves that there is a market there for it when you get that kind of reaction, I think. And, you know, it might be possible to even create a program in the future that, like, using this AI and all of this stuff, that you could just put an old game in, and then you can go, right, I, w- I want the re 
the the new version of it, the the 4K version, and it just like does it all for you. <laughs> Maybe that's a possibility. Yeah, so fingers crossed something will come out of that, even if it just, you know, spurs an idea somewhere. I think it was a definitely a worthwhile effort. Now, here's a headline I didn't expect to see on uh, my Facebook timeline when I was browsing through it this morning. There is a mini Atari Lynx revival going on right now. Yeah, Ravi sent this one over to me this morning. Um, um, yeah, it's from our Discord, actually. Oh, is it? Oh, there we go. Awesome. Um, we've got... F- our Discord are always on it, They are always on it, but we've got four new releases for the Atari Lynx. Um, coming to us this month in the forms of now are you ready we've got raid on tri-city second wave asteroids chasers uh cyber virus the lost missions and unnamed which are all completely different games completely different genres completely different styles of games and by the looks of things kind of push the links to its limits you know proper hardware pushers Um, But they're all available right now for all around about $50, $60. And they all come, you know, boxed with manuals and stuff like that. But yeah, the the, the links always seems to be getting like new little, you know, games coming out and stuff like that. A lot of people are really into the links. Dan's our resident uh, links owner, aren't you? Well, Joe's got links as well. Actually, I think your links is probably in better condition than mine. Mine, you've got to kind of angle it about 90 (laughs) degrees to see the screen. Yeah, Um, I I do have quite a nice boxed links. my wife picked it up for me for like my 18th birthday a long 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 time ago for like 10 pounds or something like that but i don't show it anywhere near enough love i have like two games for it sadly so i've got quite a lot of games for it weirdly i've actually picked them up at, um i mean they're probably not the you know the big games on the system but mm-hmm. i've got you know maybe about 20 games on it mm. um many of which i picked up for about a fiver yeah uh, you know expos and that kind of thing uh, but you're right, it does seem to be recently there's been quite a lot of like kind of homebrew titles released for it, and a lot of them come from the Atari Age Forum, which, um, you know, if you're into Atari stuff, the place to be, you know, definitely check that out. Um, they have different forums about all the different Atari systems. Mm. I often hang around the Jaguar one on there, you know, some really good like homebrew stuff gets posted in there. And this is one of their users called their Fadest. Uh, he's been there for many years, and he's done like other games as well, the, the Yastuna series of puzzle games he made before. Um, he's got a bit of a background in NES and Game Boy development, but he said the links, you know, for homebrew stuff, that was kind of the mm. system that he wanted to focus on. Because, again, it's kind of like, I think when you're making even though we do cover, you know, new Mega Drive games and that kind of thing, it does kind of feel like there's a lot of them come out now, so they maybe don't get the amount of press that doing something like a forgotten platform or something that's not that loved anymore, like the Lynx, that's got, you know, coverage in Engadget and the Metro and that kind of thing, this this four-pack of games here. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I'm not going to lie, I keep seeing a lot of Game Boy games recently coming out, and Mm. I just don't add them to our news because I just feel like we're talking about the same stuff quite a lot. Which is tough yep. sometimes to not do that, you know, when, you know, even though it's retro gaming, there is actually always new retro news, but sometimes it's very samey. So like you say, it's nice when they come out on these forgotten consoles and stuff like that. And like I say, these these are all very different games, you know, unnamed as a, like a mystery adventure game. Like it looks a little bit RPG, but, but it's more like a, I don't want to say point and click, but you know, you're kind of going around, you know, solving puzzles and stuff and trying to like solve a mystery um and then i'm not too sure what cyber virus is but it looks it really looks cool kind of very... like um a t2 arcade game yeah it looks yeah, very terminator. terminator-esque um <laughs> yeah. first person shooter um it's an fps on the links yeah exactly um and then astro chasers um i i, I 
looks like, like a shoot 'em up kind of looks game. Looks like a shoot 'em up, yeah. Um, where you've got dodge mines and dodge other ships, and then raid on Tri City is a bit of a Tetris clone, but with a, with a, <laughs> a blatant Tetris, a blatant clone, Tetris clone. But apparently, it has got a story mode in it, and it has also got a shooting element in it. Um, mm. So they all look very interesting, but it's unnamed is the one that caught my eye because that one looks. I don't know if you guys are looking at it, but the graphics yeah. on it, they look very like indie dev, what you get on like Xbox One games now where they're meant to look like retro, if that makes sense. Well, I like the carts as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the weird kind of links credit cards that are like bent at the top. I think they, yeah. they might have been quite hard to actually get. You know, I, I yeah. don't know. They're probably the 3D Atari printed them, much. I imagine. Amazing. Yeah, one, one thing I really like about this as well is, because um, you remember when you were a kid, you know, you get in the high score table on the game, turn your machine off and you'd lose it all. There's actually um, EPROMs in these as well too. Not only can it score your, uh, store your high scores, but also progress in the games as well oh, for the story-driven ones. You know, you can pick up from where you left off, which, um, yeah, Engadget say it here, and I, I think they're right. There, there wasn't any retail Lynx games that had batteries in them. You know, Game Boy ones often did, but I don't think the Lynx ever had like battery-backed-up cartridges. So that's something new. And uh, very welcome if your gameplay skills have deteriorated over the years, like mine have. It's always nice to uh, save and pick up again. So very nice to see the links getting a bit of love, and we'll link that up and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we have got an amazing guest coming up in just a minute. Tracy Fullerton is going to be joining us, exploring the earliest days of interactive gaming. It's going to be such an interesting chat, this. Before that, though, I mean, you know, this podcast comes out on a Friday. Everyone's in the weekend mood when they're listening to this podcast. Good time to crack a beer, I think, boys. What do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Even though it's only Tuesday afternoon while we're recording this, but what the hell? I kind of want one now. <laughs> no, <I heard> that. <laughs> this is our amazing friends at Beer 52. Let me have a little sip of this. Oh, that is refreshing. Now, I'm drinking a, this is a Cruz Blanca Craft Mexican Cerveza. Oh, very nice. Palm Shade Tropical Hazy IPA. Now, this is from one of their recent packs. Um, it's actually brewed in Chicago. They did a theme pack from Chicago last month. And that's what Beer 52 do. They are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And they seek out the best beers from small breweries all around the world. And each month, their members are sent a case with a different theme. And there's always something for everyone in there as well. I mean, you get eight craft beers in a case. Whenever us guys meet up and we crack open a case of Beer 52, there's always something each of us like. We've all got different tastes, which is good. Yeah, and there's always a snack as well. Which, um, yeah. You know, when you're drinking beer, you always need to have something to munch on. But you're right, it's got a nice selection and like it's good kind of exploring it. You know, you go to the shops and you get the same old kind of beers and uh, you kind of get stuck in a loop. Um, Mm. But this one, it encourages you to try different beers and uh, kind of explore the different flavours and and stuff that you wouldn't usually expect. And you're suddenly like, oh, I tried this one the other day. It's really nice. Yeah, I found a lot of my new favourite beers via Beer 52. And uh, we want you to do the same as well. So we want you to have a free case of eight craft beers. I bet a lot of people are like, what did they just say? Free beer? That's right. A free case of eight craft beers from Beer 52. All you have to do is cover the postage cost of £5.95. So if you live in the UK right now, you can claim this free beer on us. And of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by doing it. Head to beer52.com slash retro. That is beer52.com slash retro. And you will get 
a case of eight craft beers, including their ferment magazine, which is really interesting, and snacks as well. And if you don't like the dark beer, you can choose a light option. You know, it's customizable, whatever you're into. And there's no commitment either. You can pause or cancel at any time. If it's not for you, try it the free case, see what you think, and head to beer52.com slash retro. Pay £5.95 and you will get it all. Just pay the postage and you will have some free beer on us. And a big thank you to our friends at Beer52 for their continued support of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, last weekend, we had our patrons hangout that was loads of fun. Nice to see a few new faces in the hangout this week as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a really busy one. We were actually a couple of minutes late as well because we were recording the uh, after hours just before it. Um, so it was a bit of a mammoth session for us, but it was really fun, wasn't mm. it? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, new faces and uh, some really good discussion. And of course, we did do our patrons exclusive podcast before that, like you said. And at this time, we went back to the year 2002 and we did about an hour and a quarter um not only reminiscing about everything that happened in gaming that year our memories as well and actually you no know, before we did it we thought are we going to be able to follow up from 2001 but actually it was quite a packed year for gaming yeah, and tech I totally actually wasn't forgot it i had an xbox so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we were we reminded ravi show, yeah. yeah i was literally like i was like oh halo came out that year and, I, and ravi went i had an xbox that year <laughs> <laughs> So if you'd like to get involved in both of those, this is our monthly patrons hangout where it's a bit like a user's group. Once a month on a Sunday night, we all get together, we crack open a cold drink, we nerd out about all things retro, technology, gaming, movies, music, gadgets, all sorts of stuff. A really great bunch of people on there. And if you'd like to join us for the next one, back us on Patreon. All patrons are welcome. And you can get our patrons' exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours, that we bring out every month as well. And you get a few other perks. You get the normal podcast early. You get it ad-free as well. But really the reason we love you to back us on Patreon is really just to support this show. And it keeps it is a lifeblood of the show, isn't it? It guarantees that we have enough coming in each month to afford all our costs for doing the show, to pay for equipment, our hosting, everything like that. I mean, you know, we said it before, without Patreon, we actually couldn't have continued doing the show. It's no, mad we wouldn't like, have been able to do it, yeah. It's mad like since we came out of lockdown, so many people have said, the show's kept me sane uh, during yeah. lockdown. And I'm like, it's kept me sane as well, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. And without the patrons, we wouldn't have actually been able to do that in this position. You know, you've only just kind of built a studio in your garage as well, Dan. And well, right, I haven't finished you it haven't yet. Finished. Yeah. You've got a roof <laughs> got no missing walls. and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, all this time for, for pretty much two years, you know, uh, we've been able to do this show from home individually. And actually I quite, I quite like this style, even though I miss staring into your, your boy's beautiful eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when my new studio gets built, we all need to get back together to do an in-person one again and maybe, maybe film it or stream it. I mean, that'd be a laugh. Uh, but really, I mean, yeah, you know, we, couldn't have done the show without your support over the last 18 months so massively appreciated if you'd like to help out and throw into the tip jar of course we will give you a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the retro hour hall of fame and a big thank you this week to the following legends joe hallmark martin hopkins nicholas lingholm chad clark and whiz 1976 who all donated into our Patreon. We hugely appreciate that. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find all the details at theretrohour.com. Right then, let's get straight into our guest talking about the old school days of interactive gaming, um, working with MSN, MTV, shows like Web Riot, all of that coming up next with the wonderful Tracy Fullerton on the Retro Hour podcast. <laughs> 
You're listening to The Retro Hour and I'm here with Tracy Fullerton and she's an experimental games designer, professor at USC and she did a lot of stuff in the early days on uh, interactive television and uh, internet gaming as well. So um, we always ask this question of our guests first, Tracy, and that's uh, what was your first kind of gaming experience or memory that you had of gaming? Oh, wow. Um, I'm old. So (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and my family was very much about getting the new things. So I remember my mom getting a Pong machine for us. And my dad hooking it up with those AB connectors so it could switch between our regular TV and Pong. Uh, (laughs) And we were so excited to have this amazing box of game uh, and not plural game uh, in our house. It was it was absolutely incredible. And we spent hours and hours on the Pong. Uh, And that really was a, a bug. It seemed it really excited me. And then later on, my grandfather bought us a a Commodore VIC-20, which was an early PC here in the U.S. And we started making games on it ourselves. And very quickly, I said to my mom, no, no, we, we need to have the Commodore 64 because the VIC-20 doesn't have near enough memory to do the games that we want to make. Uh, so that's sort of those are sort of my earliest memories of playing and, and making games. And did you start programming on the VIC-20 and the 64 then? Were you using BASIC on it? How did you kind of get into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just BASIC. And um, we had these magazines that you could basically copy code out of. And that was a way of learning. Uh, you you know, you just copy code. And then, of course, you could make changes and customize the code. And you start to learn how it was that you could craft your own games. I remember one of my sort of big projects was making something based on war games, you know, the movie war games where they play. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Great. Tic-tac-toe. Yeah. So we made a tic-tac-toe cause it was in one of the, the magazines that we copied out of. And at the end of it, it, it would blow, it made a picture. Cause one of the things it was really good at was allowing you to program pixel by pixel, these, these little pictures. And we made at the end of our tic-tac-toe game, it would blow up basically turn into global thermonuclear (laughs) war that's right that's right it was good fun yes (laughs) were there any type of interactive television things that you saw or or kind of different types of television new ideas when you were growing up well i mean that was interactive and you have to remember that i mean when i grew up in the 70s it was actually a kind of a new thing to have a channel changer our channel changer was hooked up to our television with a cord and it was, you know, had great big buttons on it that went ka-clunk, ka-clunk, right? Uh, so, you know, that was the extent of our, uh, and the Pong was so smooth with with those rheostats that you could turn, you know, it was so extraordinary. And then, of course, we spent lots of time in the uh, arcades. But I think the early game machines to us were interactive television. I mean, that, that's how we defined interactive television to ourselves. If we're playing with our television. And it, it wasn't really until uh, somewhere, you know, in the late 90s when I was kind of in the midst of already making games that I started thinking about how we might integrate television programming with interactivity. Because there was some, there was some kind of innovation in cinema. I remember um, going and seeing like this is, you know, I'm quite young, but going and seeing a, the first kind of version of 3D, and it was like a 70s film, and you know they had the 
two colour glasses and you were sitting in there and it was like uh, loads of balls flying on the screen, falling out <laughs> of a car and stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I remember um, films where they did things, yeah, obviously early 3D and they had Sensorama where they would put the um, speakers under the floors <laughs> and shake the theatre. It was and like, was, like planetariums and and kind of stuff like that. Yeah, or they made a movie. I feel like it was maybe the Towering Inferno or the Poseidon Adventure, one of those disaster movies. And in, in Sensorama, where the floor shook and everyone was scared, it's it actually very much like the old films of. I don't know if you're familiar with William Castle, um, was a filmmaker who put like buzzers on the seats of chairs and the audience. Like one person would get a buzzer and they would basically be id id'd as the monster and people ran screaming out of theaters and stuff <laughs> no i've, I've never heard of that so <laughs> you should look up william castle was it like a member of the audience then would be yeah yeah, defined yeah. they'd as, have yeah. a buzzer on their seat and um it would be hidden like taped to the bottom of the seat <laughs> it was kind of crazy and uh very b-movie-esque when we got into the 90s, I mean, obviously one game that you're known for and um, a very experimental and early game, kind of, you know, intersection between film and gaming, a cinematic game was uh, Ride for Life. Where did the idea for that come from then? And how did you kind of get the game published and commissioned? What was kind of the story behind it? Oh, sure. So, yeah. Um, so that was part of the interfilm games and um, or cinematic games, if you will. And that was uh, a company called Interfilm that I, I worked for. It was uh, run by uh, the CEO was Bob Bajan. And I had read about they were doing, they were creating this system with, you know, laser discs and pistol grips on the, on the seats of theaters. And they were going to do all this interactivity in theater. And I read about, it, I just, I wrote him a letter and I said, listen, you know, uh, I've been to film school. I'm I'm a great storyteller, and I'm I'm also a game maker, and I love you know technology. And my last job was like programming laser discs, and um, you know I could I could do everything. So <laughs> so hire me. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, to his credit, Bob took a meeting with me, and then I wound up uh, moving out to New York to uh, work on this, this game that they were doing called ride for your life. And it was a story of these two bicycle messengers in New York city and a race to, uh, essentially save the planet was, um, set up between these, these two bicycle messengers. It's all very comic booky, but the idea was that there was these aliens trying to control the earth and they needed a great marketing scheme to do it. And so they wanted a marketing scheme for their mass communications uh, company that was going to uh, lure everyone into being part of their their platform. And then they'd take us all over. It's actually weirdly prescient if you think about it. Uh, so at, uh, Adam West was the lead alien and his the company headquarters of this big communications company was in the Guggenheim, New York, which looks like a spaceship that just landed here. And uh, yeah, these two bicycle messengers, one of which was Matt Lillard, I guess best known from Scooby-Doo uh, and other fun things. Nash Jones and Danny Deal were the bicycle messengers and you had to lead them on this race uh, to save the world. And the audience had these grips on their seats and every 10 to 15 seconds, they'd get a chance to make a choice and they'd be screaming and yelling, you know, 
trying to sway everyone to vote their way. Uh, and the story would play out. I think, I feel like uh, I remember there being something like 23 or something different endings. There was quite a few different endings depending on what they did, um, including one ending or several endings where neither of the boys won the race, but a racer X would come in and, and this complete mysterious figure would win, win the race. It was, it was all sort of more like, I would say, uh, location-based entertainment. Um, so we basically turned the theater into a kind of a arcade system, if you will, for the hundred or so people who were, I don't even want to say watching, who were interacting with the film. I mean, I guess that concept, obviously, it was very new at the time. I mean, was that kind of a hard sell to established actors like Adam West? Did he kind of get his head around it or did it take quite a lot of Oh, Adam was great. No, he loved it. Adam was great. I I remember him. He's just coming up and asking all these questions. And he was was like, you guys are just so smart. (laughs) You know how to do all this technology, you know. The best thing about Adam, though, was when we asked him to be in the film, I guess there was some stipulation that we couldn't, you know, talk about Batman that, you know, he didn't want to talk about Batman. And um, of course, you know, the whole, you know, crew were all standing around going, it's it's Batman. You know, we're (laughs) like, yeah, it's Batman. And there's this scene because he's the big alien leader and um, he's in this huge imposing lobby. It's very echoey and large. And on the table is this red phone that's like the hot phone to his superiors in the alien world. And at some point the phone rings and he picks it up and he says, Commissioner Gordon, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the whole crew just like exploded. And from then on, it was totally fine to talk to him about it and ask him about it. And uh, of course, everyone, you know, was doing their cat dances. And, you know, oh, Amazing. How <laughs> was it kind of marketed then? Because like, I guess it was a bit of a one-off experience or did people come again and again or, you know, it was shown in cinemas yeah. around the country, wasn't it? Yeah, it was shown, um, and again, it's so long, I can't remember exact number. I think it was like 50 or 60 theaters that we retrofitted across um, the U.S. And it was a 20-minute experience, and we encourage people to stay twice. We we encourage revisiting, right, because it was short and you could influence the story, so you would see all sorts of different – you'd see characters you never saw in one version or another – so that was, you know, it was basically marketed as a, we called it a cinematic game. And um, the idea was that you were making the story and it was kind of fun to see in, in the same ways, like choose your own adventure books, you know, were fun to read the alternate endings that uh, it was fun to see several times. That was the idea. And we did a couple of films. So before Ride for Your Life, um, the, the first uh, interfilm was called I'm Your Man, and it was a mystery story. And then, um, and that was really sort of built to test the system, but it was, you know, it was also released in theaters. It was actually shot after I'm Your Man, but released beforehand was called uh, Mr. Payback. And that was um, uh, written and directed by Bob Gale from Back to the Future. Oh, and wow. uh, uh, yeah, and it was, that was um, basically a kind of campy, revenge story mr payback would get you your revenge so because of the big name because of bob gale they actually wound up releasing that one before ride for your life 
So we did several. And we had another one actually coming out written by uh, Matt Costello from The Seventh Guest, if you guys way remember yeah, that yeah. one way back. And, uh, you know, it's just location-based entertainment, very cutting edge at a time before most people even had CD-ROMs on their machines. So, it, you know, one of the things we said was you don't need to buy any fancy equipment to do this. You just pay your ticket and we've got all the computers. There's no, you know, so... In that way, it was way too early because people just weren't ready to have that kind of media that they're interacting with. I mean, you fast forward to today and you have things like Bandersnatch and people are like, yeah, this is fantastic. You know, it's, it's so much fun. But I think at that time, like I say, people barely had CD-ROMs on their machines. So they, when they thought of games, they thought of, you know, 8-bit stuff and when they thought of film, they obviously thought of film. We were in this kind of weird space where I think maybe we could have done better to maybe install it in places that were more about like themed entertainment, um, where you expect to have a short experience. And you you sort of, in a, in a theater, you walk in, you buy your soda, your popcorn, your hands are full. And you sit down and we give you a pistol grip and it's sort of like, oh, wait a minute, my hands are full and now I'm supposed to jump up down and yell with my popcorn. People had a different <laughs> way of um, the situation felt different to them. Maybe and in a think, in a theme park it, it could have fit in really I think well. so. Yeah. I think so too. And um, I think it maybe, you know, possibly even still could that that, that kind of interactivity would be really fun uh, in a theme park, you know. You're seeing more and more theme parks having – very interactive game-like elements. You know, if you look at the recent Web Slingers, for example, where they're using essentially a Connect-based system, a gestural inter interaction system um, to put you into a multiplayer game. I, when I played Web Slingers, which I don't know if you have or if anyone else has, but uh, at the new Avengers campus um, at Disneyland, um, you were essentially in a group trying to fight off these, you know, monsters using your your webs which are just slinging from your own hands um and it felt very similar to the kind of we're all screaming, no get that one no get that no wait this let's all work together to do this you know uh it, it, there was a lot of similarity to the interaction pattern there i find it quite interesting you mentioned um seventh guest because obviously that was you know that those kind of couple of years leading into the mid 90s fmv games became yeah. you know to, to techie types it became the big thing i mean i remember seeing um the sega cd and the the philips cdi and those kind of systems i yeah. mean were you interested in fmv games when they originally came around well i mean essentially that's what we were making we were just doing it in a theater to be honest with you i mean we were shooting on um we shot on super 16 film and then we digitized to laser discs. And in a lot of ways, the only difference was the actual social platform, uh, the theater situation. And in fact, we, part of the group uh, later on after the company dissolved, part of the group actually bought the assets and we did release I'm Your Man, the first one, as a CD-ROM, you know, choose your own adventures. It's basically, it's very, very similar. Well, how did you end up getting involved with uh, Microsoft Network and kind of w what things were they aiming <laughs> to achieve in 96? Did they have lots of grand visions? So this is a great story because I mentioned Bob Bajan, who is the uh, CEO of Interfilm. Um, and after Interfilm, um, you know, closed, uh, Bob went to Microsoft and uh, I went to our Greenberg and Associates in New York uh, where they were starting up a games division. And um, 
I had I had uh, actually wound up pitching to another part of Microsoft and all things, you know, too long, don't read story, but we basically wound up where Bob was executive uh, producer of the Microsoft network, the new Microsoft network and um, this game Netwits that I pitched, which um, was a kind of party online party game was picked up by the Microsoft network. And so we wound up strangely enough working together again on this. And it has some similarities to the interaction pattern from Interfilm in that it's a group experience and it was very, very early on in the web. And our idea was that we would have a show that was at a specific time every day and you would tune in to the big show and play these um, multiplayer casual party games and you have this uh, animated host, Vic Marvelous, um, and the, you know, he would sort of, it was kind of snarky. It was kind of a cross between like, I don't know, a snarky game show host, but like a very sort of charming, uh, kind of a Dick Van Dyke, like, you know, affable 1950s sort of uh, host. And he would comment on your play. And at the end, he would give out prizes. And the prizes were if you think back, it's kind of hilarious from this brand new service, no one had ever really heard of called Expedia where they were going to give away a plane ticket anywhere in the U S every night to the top Netwits player. And they did, they actually gave away this brand new service, gave away plane tickets. And we didn't even understand this because this was back in the day when you called a, you called someone who made you a ticket, right? You called a travel agent. Yeah. I don't even remember what they were called anymore. Right. Um, <laughs> You called a travel agent and they got you a ticket, right? And this was this whole new thing, this idea that you would sort of book online. People like, wow, I don't, I don't understand that, right? But Vic Marvelous was handing out free online plane tickets every night at, at uh, a specific hour. And the, uh, I forget actually what the second place prize was, but the third place prize was a party lampshade. So you kind of won the lampshade that you would wear home from the party. And so it was very fun. And we had five different games and you could come on and practice the games all day long. So the games were actually up and available just like any multiplayer games. But then at the particular hours, the lights went down, the drum rolled, the curtains rose, and it was live from RGA Studios in Midtown Manhattan. Good evening and welcome to Nedwitz. And Vic comes on and it's actually, this is now for the money. It's it's amazing to think because it was like, I, I kind of looked at it and it was like a 1940s Jetson style animation. Yeah. And uh, how was all that animation done and it coordinated? And were people using like dial-up access um, back then? Um, I mean, yeah. Was it like 28-point? Yes. Eight or 56k yeah it's probably around 56k around then and so it had to be very lightweight and so that and it's a really great question by the way that animation was done by chuck gamage who's a very famous warner brothers animator and it was hand-drawn cell animation that was hand-drawn i still have all the cells beautiful and then we uh scanned it and we basically redrew it to make it small enough for people to access via their 56 bot modems, you know? But so all of that was was done through a very painstaking process of, of Chuck drawing and then we're, uh, scanning and cleaning and 
making vectors and uh, making this so that it was um, small enough and fast enough to run on the most minimal web connection possible. Even the audio encoding must have been hard to kind of get it to buffer and then get him to ask all the questions and kind of, you know, have that all delivered at the same time with It was. And we had, and I had... And I had such visions for the audio too. So Michael Sweet did the audio, who's my longtime collaborator. I'm still working with Michael. Michael Sweet did the audio and I kept telling him, it's like, it's got to have these, it's got to be like big band, like big fat horns, you know, and and it's got to just sound like this big band is behind him. And we were going for a kind of space age bachelor pad feel, you know, and I had such high hopes for that audio. And then of course, again, we had to squish it down into the pipe, the the teeny tiny little pipe, but Michael did a fantastic job making that work out. And um, we did two versions of it. We did a MIDI version that was never, I never enjoyed very much. And we did a, you know, just a, a wave version of it we did all these tests and we finally just used the compressed version of the wave. Cause I just couldn't, I couldn't live with the MIDI version of those horns. They just didn't, they didn't feel like the right era. Uh, and I guess everybody was on a different PC on a different setup with different sound yeah. cards and uh, it wasn't all unified. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, but is it today? I mean, look at the mobile market. I mean, yeah. it's the thing is, is it's never been easy, right? Uh, the sheer number of platforms you try to hit when you ship games to PC to mobile. I mean, it's just, you're trying to get the creative and it's always winds up trying to then just squish it into whatever these platform, you know, differences are. I was trying to remember the um, Microsoft network as well. Was that kind of Microsoft's um, kind of their walled garden version of the internet, uh, like the World Wide web, like their own version of it, wasn't it? Where it was yeah, so a bit like AOL. Be yeah. AOL. Okay, yeah. so so they saw AOL and they want to be AOL, so they announced MSN, right? And yeah, so Walled Garden, and so all, they got all these developers like us to actually start developing for it. We were building our own, you know, at the time, really early on, it was our own massively multiplayer game engine um, using they they specified we had to use their chat pro, uh, their chat platform to do it, and then of course Bill Gates gives his like sort of semi-famous, I guess, for those of us who are there, we're going to the internet speech. Everything is going now to the internet. So we're not going to use their proprietary platforms. We're all- The tidal wave one. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So we're all going to the internet. So all the developers had to switch over, including us. We had to now build for the internet protocol. And we're like, okay, that's fine. We actually had told you we'd rather do that anyways, but now we have to rebuild it. So that, you know, it was a crazy time. Uh, It was- if I could just sort of place it, it was pre-Flash. So if you look at the animations in in Netwits, they look like people are like, oh, it's in Flash. I said, well, actually, no, we had to build our own because Flash came out two thirds of the way through production. So that is an entirely, you know, home built, you know, custom animation engine. And then, of course, after Netwits came out, there was Flash and everyone used Flash for however many years. Obviously, today, I mean, sponsorship is a big thing. I mean, that was one of the first sponsored internet games. It was. Was that, was that a hard sell then? How, how did that kind of work? It wasn't a hard sell. And I think a lot of it came out of the premise because the premise was, we, you know, we said we're going to be a game show and game shows have, you know, sponsors, right? Mm. And it was, the art was really cool and hip and people liked the style, you know, 
it wasn't actually the uh, you know hard sell that you thought it would be because it's it once you know we just sort of when we went to sell it we made a little animation it's like you know here's netwitz brought to you by our sponsor the best sponsor we know which like your name here right people loved it they thought oh that that's cool we could we we will we're in um and i think you know at the time expedia was also as much as people were saying what's this web game they were also saying, what's this internet travel service? So it was sort of a match, you know, really good match made in the internet. Well, was that when you decided to form um, Spider Dance and kind of turn this into a company that was going to produce these pieces of interactive kind of television and uh, online linking and stuff like that? Well, that was a little later, actually. So after Netwits, I actually uh, was still at RGA Interactive and we were contacted by Columbia who owned Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. And they had seen what we'd done with Netwits and, you know, it got some attention and got like some honors, some like best of the web on from time magazine, stuff like that. And um, they contacted us and they're like, hey, we, whoever did this Netwits thing, we want you to do Jeopardy and wheel because, you know, we, we know we've got a, you know, audience problem and we need to attract some younger players. And we think the internet's the place to do it. And so they wanted to do um, online multiplayer versions of Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. And ironically, they wanted to young it up and they kept, they wanted to really do what we'd done with the art and sort of the, you know, kind of snarky flair. And they're like, well, we want you to do that for Jeopardy and Wheel. <laughs> We're like, okay, that sounds really fun. Uh, so we, so we did wound up designing the first online multiplayer versions of Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune which went over really well and were if possible in even tighter pipe to send stuff down because uh, they were all done in Java. And at least with Netwits, we had made an executable that people downloaded, but this was all, you know, basically streamed using Java. And so it was a really, really tight, it was just, there were all, I mean, there were almost no graphics. And when you look at it, people are like, oh, the graphics are cool. I'm like, yeah, there were almost none of them. I mean, there's, there's nothing there. It's just all a trick of the eye that you're seeing graphics. But yeah, so wound up doing that and that went really well. And, you know, about that time I, I wanted to start my own company. So I reached out with some friends and that's when we started talking about spider dance and um, really expanding on some of the ideas that I'd been thinking about with how to reach what I call the the normal people on the internet, right? So mm. if you remember back then, it was it was a bunch of us who, you know, we'd all been on BBSs and we'd all sought the internet out somehow as hard as it was to get. And there weren't a lot of just average people. It wasn't something that everyone did the way that the way that it is now. But with AOL and with, you know, more and more people sort of coming on and tentatively doing things like shopping, that was starting to change. I mean, it wasn't just now a bunch of us looking at coffee pots in, you know, because if you remember, that's, that's <laughs> what webcams, it was, yeah. right? We were all looking yeah. at coffee pots across the world, like, oh, look at the coffee. Fish tanks. Yeah. And we're like, you know, that was our entertainment, but that wasn't going to do for normal people, right? Mm. <laughs> so we were all marveling at the amazement of how you can do that. And they, they, they wanted some entertainment. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that, I think, th basically through my whole career. And Spider Dance 
was an extension of, of those thoughts about entertainment and how we could bring sort of shows that were appealing to the broadest range of players that were easy to get to and that would be marketed, I guess is the crass way to say it, would be marketed to the broadest range of people um, to come and play them. And so the idea there was to build two-screen interactivity. There had been a lot of attempts to build boxes for interactive television. Um, I think actually in the UK they had some success with the, was it called the Big Red Button or something like that? Yeah, um, oh, the Red yeah, Button, we've yeah. still got yeah. that actually um, yeah. okay. in, in sports events. But they had like lots of iterations before. I remember, I think Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was, right. was one, uh, interactive TV they called it, I think. Yeah. So here there was a couple, I mean, there's big hurdles, but some of the biggest hurdles were just the market was not, there's no, there was no consolidation in the cable market. Right. And so you couldn't get one box and there was such a range of platforms and capabilities of the boxes they had. There was just no way to develop for the box market in, in um, cable television uh, or in satellite either. And so our idea was to basically, you know, we noticed this trend. People were watching television and surfing the web on their laptops, right? Or watching on their, they're just sitting and they've got a TV and a, and a PC. Um, so there's this big trend of people doing, you know, multitasking. And um, we thought, well, we'll make a service where we can make your television show interactive. And, you know, our first client uh, was great because it was MTV and we got to actually design a game show from the ground up that included audience interactivity from the people who were co-playing at home. So there's a television show and then there's people at home playing against the same questions and answers in real time synced. And then, uh, you know, at certain points, the player of the day who was a player who happened to have like it was a very small pool who happened to have a webcam, right? Like very early webcam was piped in to say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm the player of the day. Right. <laughs> um, and then we piped in the scores. Uh, so you could see who you could see your name on TV if you did really well. And of course the host was con uh, constantly referring to the online players, etc. cetera. Uh, so the, the whole show was integrated in terms of its, uh, flow and also just the look and feel and design uh, so that that it really felt like you as an at-home player were part of this this television show. I would say that was like the best case scenario that, because... Was that called Web Riot, MTV yeah, Web that, Riot? Yeah, yeah. That, that was Web Riot and it was hosted by Amit Zappa. And it was really fun. It was great fun to develop the kind of integrated idea. It was really, it was really well received and and that kind of was the kickoff for our, it was our first client. It was allowed us to kick off the company. And then we did a bunch of other shows, including we did a version of uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, actually, in the US. And, and the interesting thing about the system was, of course, it didn't require a box. You could, you, it, it was web-based. Um, so you could play it on anything with a web browser. In fact, we were able to, play it even on early web TV systems, which were boxes. And we were looking at, or very early on, um, going to mobile phones when they became powerful enough. Um, but, you know, we were trying to get past the 
the fact that there was no consolidation in the market and really make it easy for anyone with a web browser to get on and to to play this game um, and to be part of the show. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it was interesting because our massively multiplayer server that we built had to be able to accept essentially a million people within the span of a few seconds. Wow. And people don't really think about it, but most multiplayer servers, you know, people come in and on, in and out and they don't get hit with that number of people all at one time. But the way television works, because, it, you know, the show comes on da, 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 and every and then it says, and be sure to play along. OK. And then a fraction of the audience, which is like, you know, could be a million people <laughs> goes, oh, yeah, let's play. And they log on. And so our um, server had to be able to essentially take the tickets, boom, 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 shuffle everyone into rooms so fast uh, that there wouldn't be a hiccup. And that was one of the, you know, big innovations uh, in our, in our server along, you know, with just the fact that it was syncing within a 10th of a second, it was syncing to all the national feeds. And that's the biggest problem with doing this kind of thing, by the way, in the U S is that we have so many time zones. Yeah, that's that's kind of insane because thinking about it in the UK, we had a thing which was um, when people when the advertising break would come on, there'd be a surge in people turning the kettle on um, to to cook, have some tea <laughs> and the national grid would actually have to, you know, deal with that surge of power that Turn the power suddenly up, yeah. came in. So you guys must have been under like enormous pressure. If that failed at that moment, it, it, it would have been it would have been a, a disaster. So. Yeah, the, the kind of pressure and the attention of just sitting there and then seeing a million people on must have been immense. Yeah, you're telling me. And, and uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, a startup. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can remember at the press event that we went to to sort of introduce the idea, uh, the MTV executive, I'm not going to, but anyways, MTV executive who was in charge came in and he's like, okay, we've got, we got, we got all these test laptops for the press to be on and the whole thing is set up and ready to go. And we're going to run a test feed and, you know, all this stuff. And he comes in, he's shaking my hand and goes, so this is going to work, right? And I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is going to work, right? <laughs> and I turned to my CTO, I'm like, this better work. Essentially DDoSing yourself with uh, <laughs> the amount of people God. coming on. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, and it did work. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I mean, we did have a couple of uh, times where people tried to hack us, but we, we responded really quickly, but most, for the most part, we were, you know, our motto was the show must go on. We had tools so that there were monitors in our operation system who would watch the feeds. And if they were getting out of sync, they could, you know, ticket forward or backwards a little bit just to get it right back in sync and um, just monitoring. And this is early too. So monitoring language, monitoring uh, behavior, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, and just making sure we were running a clean show. And to reach a kind of audience as well. So, I mean, I remember, you know, when television got the the web, you know, it's crazy to think now that they would do like, you know, the top 10 websites you've got to visit this week. That'll be features on TV shows that they do for a while. And obviously MTV back then, you know, before it was 
repeats of Jersey Shore, whatever the show <laughs> these days. It was, you know, Beavis and Butthead and had music videos and all teenagers watched it. Did it feel like a very, like a cultural fit then having the web that was so cutting edge and MTV together? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, it's interesting you say a lot of kids watch it because we also, in our, in our other shows, so some of the other audiences who really got it, we did uh, one for the History Channel where there's just diehards out there, right? They would watch every day and they would play every day. Um, and then we did one for the Game Show Channel, Game Show Network. And then, of course, we did Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And each of these have different audiences, but some of these other ones actually skewed a bit older. So it was interesting to see that it really was doing that thing that I said in the beginning. It was starting to open up the web for a different audience, a broader audience. Not only just the young people who all it already was a, a fit for, but for a sort of old, sometimes an older audience and an old, a non-techie audience. Well, you you also did a, a James Bond uh, uh, one <laughs> yeah, <we> as did. <laughs> well during a kind of James Bond marathon. So was it yeah. like themed on the different films then and stuff? Yeah, exactly. So it had themed. It, it that one was designed to be, uh, as I recall, a kind of clue type game where you had to you had to watch along. You were looking for items, and you had to put. It was kind of a who done it, you know, in in a clue format. I can't remember the exact uh, mechanic, but it was sort of like you had to find the the villain, the like the weapon and the situation or something like that. And and yeah, and so you had to essentially solve it. Uh, there were trivia questions, but there was also this sort of clue mystery that was going on that would complete each film, I think, or something like that. So, uh, yeah, talk about diehards. Yeah, they're definitely people who already knew all the answers because James Bond folks, they know it all. They know they're just sitting there repeating the lines of the movies as they watch them. Well, I remember a uh, quiz show that was huge over here and obviously um, made it over into America as well. Uh, the Weakest Link um, with Anne Robinson's you know, infamous sarcasm on there as well. And uh, you worked on that. Is it now a huge oh interactive God. title? You're, just, you're, gonna exp- you're exposing my ancient brain. And that's the one we did. That's the one <laughs> yeah. we did. So this is just, you have to understand for the people who are young, uh, sometimes your brain does a little fart. But The Weakest Link is the one we did. And mm. ABC did their own Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Sorry, they were they were the shows are so linked in my brain because they <laughs> came out at like the same time here in America. Um, but yeah, the weakest link is the one that we did. For she, she was mean, wasn't she? <laughs> the she was. The queen of yeah. mean. Yeah. She was mean. Uh, and that was the fun of it, right? And so we actually, that one was, the reason it's all linked to my head is the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire people had a two screen thing. And so the folks at... NBC wanted a two screen interactivity for weakest link. And there was like a cup by now there was a couple of people kind of copying us. And so they were also in the market and they were bidding it and we just made it. I remember me and my CTO, we just on a weekend, we just made the game. I did all the art. He did all the programming. We just made it. And then, so we went in for our pitch and we just said, here it is. We made it for you. Give us the job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you kind of uh, mentioned that, like, there were other people doing it and stuff. Did you see any uh, inspiring projects as well? And uh, uh, w- well, that was the disappointing thing, to be honest with you. I would have loved it if there was 
uh, a lot of competition that was really pushing it forward. And we always tried to sell people to go beyond trivia. I mean, the obvious thing to do with it was trivia. And of course, we wound up doing a lot of trivia. But we also, like I mentioned with the Bond thing, and then one of the other ones we did was, my God, I'm blanking on it. But it was a, it was a reality show where these folks were on this really treacherous journey and they had to cooperate to make it through this, this sort of wilderness. Why I don't know. I can't remember the name, but anyways, uh, we pitched them an actual cooperative piece of gameplay, social gameplay, where you actually had to figure out what to sort of bring along with you on this, tr- this, you know, dangerous trek. It wasn't just trivia, right? It was like actual, like almost like an RPG, a little teeny weeny mini RPG. And we were always trying to do that. But the problem that I found with our competitors is they were just doing what their VC told them to do, which was, I mean, to diss anybody, but this is what VC tell you to do is just do the same thing over and over again and do it as cheaply as possible, right? So that you can make a essentially a cheap service out of it. And I just, honestly, that just would make my heart die to do that. And what I would want to do was build a platform that was really going to push the medium forward and do it in a way that we could bring a, lo- a much broader audience together, right? My reason for connecting with television wasn't that I wanted to make trivia television. My reason for connecting with television was that I wanted a broader market of people to design for. You mentioned um, Bandersnatch before. Yeah, um, exactly. Obviously the inter- interactive um, version of um, Black Mirror. We had Charlie Brooker on the show when that came out talking about it, and that was really interesting. I mean, obviously you being a pioneer in this space, what did you think of Bandersnatch then? And do you think the, the technology now makes obviously life a lot easier than when, when you started doing it oh, back in the day? Yeah, I was like, wow, that's fantastic. I wish we'd had that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's great. I mean, well, I'd love to write one of those, you know, that would, that would be fantastic fun. You know? Yeah. He said he, uh, uh kind of hand programmed, uh, the actual yeah. language for it. So, so it is there in Netflix. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, one of my problems with choose your own adventure and, you know, sort of, I guess, lin the sort of linear based interactivity was always that it was difficult to make granular changes to the narrative. You had to make big sweeping changes to the narrative. I think they did a good job with that. And we always tried to do that to sort of kind of bring the narrative back to points where you could kind of close it down a little bit and then you open it up and you close it down. But that's how I sort of wound up moving more into pure games, to be honest, is because I was more, I was like, how can we get to a point where we have this ability to granularly change what happens and the answer obviously is in animation right when you're when you're not dealing with pre-filmed assets when you're dealing with assets that are rendered you know at runtime then you can have um, more granular changes to the to the story kind of games are restricted at the moment like i've played on you know some servers and you'll have 200 people on there and stuff Uh, I'd, i'd love to see a mass huge participation game with a million (laughs) <laughs> or something like that. Do you think we'll ever see anything like that in the uh, in the game yeah, world? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, it's not that fun. This is the one thing I found out doing these massively multiplayer um, events. Think of a stadium. How many people? You know, let's say there's, let's say I go to Dodger Stadium. There's fifty five thousand people there. Okay, um, my sense of the crowd is as of a entity, right? then I have a sense of the people in the rows around me, 
And of course, I have a sense of the people that I went to the game with, right? So there's kind of like the proximity effect of, of, of a large crowd. And um, one of the problems with online crowds, if you will, is that we have no, we get no pleasure from the proximity of millions of people unless the interface supports it. And I think to date, the kinds of games that we, we build are really more for um, smaller groups or a bunch of groups uh, in simultaneous interaction that sort of then feed back up to a larger one. But um, the problem with a million people is online is that you really don't have any sense of them. And it always so, turns into a mob in the end of yeah. the day. Like I've, I've played on yeah. big servers and they just turn crazy, you know? Yeah. And, and so I think what you see is that people are focusing in on the fun and the fun is on people that you can see and know and not on just a mob. But I do think maybe, I mean, I can imagine a de- being a great design challenge to say to yourself, okay, well, what can a million people do together? And what, what could it feel like to have like the world's biggest, I don't know, the world's biggest sporting event or something online? One of the projects you've been involved with, which um, obviously received a lot of accolade, was um, Cloud, which is you know quite an abstract title. Tell us a bit about that project then and wh- where that idea came from. Yeah, so this comes from when I transitioned out of commercial world into um, academia and was part of the beginnings of the USC Games program and the USC Game Innovation Lab, which I direct. And at the very beginnings of the program, Electronic Arts was funding us, and and part of that funding went towards uh, what we call the Game Innovation Grant. And uh, what we did was we took proposals from from students across USC campus, and we were looking for innovative ideas to produce. Um, We give them, I I think it was like a twenty five thousand dollar grant, if I'm not mistaken. And so one of the first ones we got was from Genova and uh, Genova Chen, who's now the one of the founders and the creative director of that game company. But so Genova had had pitched this idea about a small alien child who lived in the clouds. And um, there was all this scientific stuff about clouds and cloud seeding and terraforming a planet. It's all this crazy stuff. But at the core of it was this interesting flight simulator where you were manipulating clouds. And it sounded really interesting. And so uh, we selected that and worked with the student team um, to really hone that experience into something that was really new. Um, and so that was a really great time, um, really early on in the in the Game Innovation Lab, where we were developing um, what I call play-centric method of design. And it was it's a it's a method of design that focuses in on innovative experience goals for players. I think I've been doing this my whole career, thinking about you know making something that change the way people feel, not just a game where you were just pushing buttons, but a game that would make you feel a certain way, like a game that might make you feel connected to players online who you'd never met, or a game that might make you, you know, in this case, feel a sort of peaceful, zen-like connection to nature. And we had like 10,000 people come and download it, and it totally, like we had to put it on this tiny student server, and it just took us down. <laughs> and they want the people that were providing the bandwidth wanted all this money from us. And we're like, what? We don't have any money, you know? Uh, so we, ha- we pegged the university to put it on their servers. And so they did. And then like a hundred thousand people came and they're like, get this off our servers. We can't have this on our servers. What, <laughs> you're taking down the university, you know? And so then we went to our, our funders at EA and we said, please, please 
put this on your server and they did and actually the game is still on their servers to this day uh you i think you can still download it that's you know? um it also kind of feels like uh walden as well which is uh yeah, your latest <laughs> yeah. one has got that kind of relaxed pace and uh you know yeah you know but it's also got that kind of survival a vibe that's well, so that popular was... at the moment yeah, I mean, well, at the moment, so so that's something, you know, I've been working on for more than a decade. So it is interesting that the, the survival, and people are always like, oh, but, you know, there's all these other survival sims. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to do about that. When I started building mine, there weren't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's not intended to be a survival sim. As you point out, it's, it's a very meditative game, which is what I'm very interested in. I'm interested in creating situations of play that cause people to reflect and think about what they're doing. I think I find that many games, including some of my own early games, move so fast that people don't reflect on what they're doing. And so I want to make games, and I'm interested in that right now, where people have the time and sort of cognitive space to think about the situation that they're in. And I took this book of philosophy, you know, Walden by Henry David Thoreau as the basis of a game, which yes, has a, has a, a minimal survival sim at its core, but uh, sort of running counter to that is this idea that just surviving isn't enough, that having this sort of deep connection to nature and also thriving uh, in our relationship to nature and, and finding inspiration in nature is equally important to surviving. It, it feels like um, other games are kind of like, uh, I need to farm to craft and to, to build. And this one's like, slowly strike the hammer and the nail and kind of just just explore the land and, and, and move around. It's, it's really nice. Yeah, well, it's as important to strike the hammer as it is to go and commune with the birds. And they like they both give you a certain kind of points, if you will, under the hood. Uh, and you have to uh, keep a focus on that balance in your life. That's available on the uh, Xbox One and PlayStation 4, Mac OS and Windows at the moment, if our listeners want to check that out. Yes, it's actually on sale right now on PS4 in both Europe and um, uh, in North American stores. I just got a PS5 last week, so I'm looking for things to install on it. So It will run on PS5. Chat. I mean, yeah, yeah it, we got reports that it runs really well, actually. Nice. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> if I could ever have to- a PS5. Oh. Oh, yeah, just trying to get hold of one. It took me nearly a year. Good for you. Well, Tracy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. It's amazing to you. you still got that passion as well. I mean, is there anything you're working on at the moment we should look out for soon? Well, we're actually, uh, I mean, we're still talking about Walden. We're working on an educational version of Walden, which is available mm. to educators for free, and it's a whole new series of modules that are based on certain parts of Walden along with curriculum and that's at walden uh waldengame.com slash educators and these are web-based modules and so very easy to get no install or anything like that they just um, run right in your browser fantastic we'll link that up in our show notes so uh people can check it out great wonderful tracy well listen thank you again for coming on and sharing your stories with us absolutely it's been a pleasure really fun to dig up some of those old memories (laughs) 